Hi, everyone, and welcome to Academic Dean, where we connect with passionate college leaders who share their stories and viewpoints of higher education, especially lessons learned along the way. Now, here's your host, Dr. Dave Gurchak. Hi, everyone. Today, I'd like to welcome Dr. Clifford Coppersmith to our show. Dr. Coppersmith is the president of Chesapeake College in Y Mills, Maryland. Hello, my friend. So good seeing you over the Zoom. It's great to be with you, Dave. It's been a long time, and uh, you're certainly one of my good friends from good old Billings. And I've uh, been watching the news there. I read the Billings Gazette pretty much every day to see what's going on with my friends out in uh, Big Sky Country. Yes, yes. I, it's safe to say we miss you. Uh, and it was always fun hanging out and going for our beer and trying to solve the problems of the world. And so can you talk a little bit about Chesapeake College and why students select your institution? Well, we're uh, the college of first choice for our uh, five county region. We're the, the first regional college established in Maryland back in 1965 and the only college that uh, works with five counties, which uh, presents both extraordinary opportunities, but also challenges. So for example, right now we're preparing our budget for the next fiscal year. I have to present that budget to five counties that, that are supporting counties. And that's a really interesting uh, exercise in county government. Um, I go to five separate uh, sets of hearings and uh, the process begins here this month when we take our, our proposal to our board of trustees and won't be done until about May. So, uh, that's uh, our, our Chesapeake College is uh, really seen as the first college to go to for our local population. We have a lot of dual enrollment students pre-COVID, about 25% of our enrollment was uh, uh, dual enrollment students in our local high schools. Um, and that's really positioned for, for some challenges uh, with COVID because a lot of those students have been severely impacted in their ability to attend online education. So that, that's uh, a, kind of in a nutshell, um, our high school population is very well served by us. I think we're roughly getting about 20% of our local graduates are coming to Chesapeake uh, some way or the other, either through dual enrollment or actually as first time freshmen. Still serving the adult population, although we'd like to be doing better with that. It's been a slide for us uh, as many community colleges have seen, especially with the economy the way it was. A lot of adult learners simply are too busy go, going to work, uh, sometimes as multiple jobs. Uh, to go to college. So we've been working on that on that front. But we have a great health professions portfolio, very much like uh, City College and Billings. Uh, great nursing program, paramedic. We have a, a physical therapy assistant program we do with Anne Arundel Community College and a consortium agreement. Um, we have a, uh, a really good surge tech program. And then we have a whole host and array of short-term non-credit, everything from CNA, medical uh, office assistant, etc. So Really strong portfolio for the health professions, a lot of jobs locally. So we have a very strong presence there. We also have skilled trades, which we've been trying to recover. Uh, that kind of uh, languished a little bit prior to my arrival. So we're trying to get the skilled trades back in. And that's very popular with our students, including CDL truck driving program. And then finally, about half of our students are here for the classic uh, uh, transfer liberal arts and sciences. Many of them going to Salisbury University. That's uh, one of our uh, state system uh, partners uh, in southern, the southern shore of the eastern shore of Maryland. And then we have students going everywhere from there, uh, including University of Maryland, Towson, uh, and points uh, north with private institutions and even out of state. So that's roughly uh, kind of a very broad brush stroke of what uh, students are looking for and what we do at Chesapeake. 
Well, it sounds like you have a, a lot of great uh, opportunities for students to show up and move their career forward or to change a career or to do some short-term credentials. So absolutely, that's pretty exciting. So what's, what's going to be new for Chesapeake College coming 2021, 2022? Well, unfortunately, what's new is what's old. Uh, we are, are in the midst of COVID. Uh, most of our offerings are online. Uh, we basically pivoted to mostly online uh, as a matter of crisis uh, last March when the COVID epidemic arrived in Maryland. Uh, we virtually went overnight over a spring break period of about two weeks, which we extended so faculty had time to adjust. Some things we just stopped doing. Uh, fortunately for our health professions, most of the clinicals, uh, clinical portions of their studies have been completed by the time we did that. Um, we did have some of our rad tech students had to actually stop and then come back in the summer when we got them back on campus uh, after the COVID immediate crisis had passed. Um, so we switched to mostly online in the spring. Uh, over the summer, of course, we did uh, a limited schedule for summer programming, but it was all online. And then beginning in June, we brought some health professions back and some skilled trades back, which we maintained until uh, our holiday break for the uh, Christmas and, uh, and New Year's uh, holiday period. Um, Right now, we're gonna start classes on the 27th of January. We'll be all online uh, because we are really watching COVID very closely. It's uh, definitely out of control uh, in our local region. We're having daily reports of faculty and staff being affected uh, from home with the COVID, uh, which is impacting uh, our ability probably to offer anything on campus, at least at the beginning of the semester. But we hope as soon as uh, conditions permit that we can get back to uh, a, a higher level of activity on campus. That being said, fall, uh, which is your questions about what would be new, we were hoping uh, that we would be able to have at least 50% occupancy on campus. Uh, that's our plan. Uh, but uh, at this point, who knows? It really is about the, uh, the race between immunizations and these new variants that are coming on board that are more transmissible, in which we'd have to be more concerned again about uh, how many folks we can have going to school on campus, including you know, food services, athletics, all those things that uh, have been severely impacted by the virus uh, as it has uh, been present in here in the state of Maryland. So uh, any new programs or any changes to the facility or anything like that, or you just pretty much just trying to move forward and get through COVID and start, start re-up again and fall for maybe hopefully face-to-face? -face? Well, in terms of facilities, we just brought on board in the last five years a fantastic uh, health professions and athletics facility. We call it the HPAC. Uh, that's the HPAC building, which houses both our health professions, including a state-of-the-art sim lab for nursing mm -hmm. and lab, a similar lab for paramedic. We have a full uh, theater surge tech uh, space, which I love, would have loved to have had back in Billings when we were talking about surge tech with the local uh, health systems. Uh, so we have really, we've invested heavily in our, in our facilities uh, recently. So I personally don't see any new buildings in our future. Mm -hmm. Uh, we do have a, a $3 million uh, campaign that we're currently uh, in the quiet phase of, raising funding for scholarships, equipment, and some minor renovations to our skilled trades facilities, which uh, we're working on presently that will be public uh, shortly. Um, so that's probably the, the limit in terms of uh, uh, programming, but we're really trying to expand and deepen and improve our skilled trades. Uh, that includes welding, HVAC, plumbing, mm -hmm. uh, those, those technical trades that are in such high demand. And there's of course great opportunities for uh, technicians to get into those fields and make a good living. So for me as a president, 
that really has been an area of emphasis since I got here three years ago. As part of that, we've revamped uh, the administrative structure for continuing education, new leadership, uh, new processes. We have some issues with uh, running those programs uh, efficiently, and we've made a lot of progress with that. So we're trying to position ourselves both in terms of human resources, uh, technical leadership, faculty, and curriculum to be in a really good place for recovery when we can start getting back to business with uh, students back on campus with these hands-on programs. That's really been the focus for us. Uh, but I do think that the COVID will be kind of the dominant story for us as we try to operate around it. We try to provide uh, safe and health conditions for students and faculty and staff uh, to continue our work with our students, which of course, a lot of people are doing this across the country right now. Well, then that kind of leads me into another question I had for you since you've mentioned COVID. So, so what do you think the implications of COVID are both uh, short-term and long-term on higher ed? Well, as you know, higher ed has been a highly uh, disrupted, uh, for lack of a better word, industry for the last many years. The impact of uh, online learning, uh, the profusion of competitors now, because you're not, you're not uh, necessarily married to a location as a student to continue your, your college studies. You know, when people talk to me about uh, competition within the state of Maryland, I basically say, you know, we have thousands of competitors now. Uh, you can go to school at any number of great institutions across the country. Uh, many of them are very high quality and they're very affordable. So I think the, what's really happening with that online education modality has really been uh, just put on steroids uh, in the last uh, six to nine months. We ourselves have put uh, courses and we have faculty teaching in the online environment that never would have without the uh, imperatives that were brought to by COVID. Uh, we're trying to get certified to, um, to be a really good provider of online education. We have a couple of programs that are available uh, for online learning that uh, we want to expand that kind of portfolio because it's really where students' needs want to be met. But at the same time, we've learned uh, very uh, dramatically in the last 10 months that you know roughly 20 to 30 percent of our students are not interested in online education. Uh, some of them are doing it because they have to. But we do know that more than ever, students want to be on campus. They want to be in classroom and labs with a highly dedicated and qualified faculty member teaching their class in front of their um, in front of the classroom. So that's kind of the the duality that uh, volatility we've seen in higher ed that's been disrupted by technology, higher ed. Uh, sorry, online education, uh, social media. Uh, another piece of that. Uh, those things have just uh, really uh, replicated in terms of their intensity and the time frame. So short term, you know, it's all about the adjustment and, and trying to do the best we can with under these very challenging circumstances. Longer term, I think the shakeout of higher ed that we've been talking about, uh, particularly the impact on smaller private liberal arts institutions, we know they are continuing to struggle. I uh, just heard today about a local uh, private ed institution in uh, the state of Delaware that's being absorbed by the Delaware state system. Those kinds of things are happening. Uh, mergers, acquisitions, all these things you hear about in the private sector really have arrived in higher ed. So for us in the public sector, particularly community college systems, you know, the big story is the unforeseen decline in enrollment uh, that came with COVID and with the economic crisis. We all thought that students would come back to school in droves. Uh, that has not happened. We have uh, both in terms of first-time freshmen, adult learners, People are sitting this out while they see what happens or they're overwhelmed with the impact on their lives, either economically or socially or uh, medically. 
And so that's uh, one of the big question marks for me as a president, you know, how do we negotiate uh, that reality as we continue to deal with this crisis? Yeah, you know, I was reading in the uh, uh, the Chronicle as far as everybody thought displaced workers were going to be heading back to the community colleges, and it surprised everybody that they just didn't show up. So, right. Well, part of it, and, and I think this was a positive story because of at least in some states the uh, the response with unemployment benefits, and then of course uh, federal stimulus and assistance there. You know, workers did have the opportunity. Some of them, not all of them. I, I, of course, I know there's been a very uneven. Uh, impact of some of those programs, especially as you look at the variation from state to state and the availability of those benefits. But some uh, some folks had the opportunity to sit back and wait, and they're still doing that, I think, to some extent. There's a, I think, a, a, I don't know if it's resistance, but certainly there's a watch and wait attitude as many folks are hoping to go back to what they did before. Uh, and I can only imagine over the next six to seven months, that's probably going to change. Uh, we know from all the research that's been conducted that many of these jobs uh, particularly in the hospitality and um, tourism industry may not be coming back for quite some time. So that obviously reinforces the fact that we have to get ready for the retraining piece that's going to be happening. You know, right here on the Eastern Shore, we have incredible demand for the skilled trades, construction, both residential and commercial. Uh, there's been no slowdown in contracts for house building locally. In fact, it's kind of uh, been supercharged because people want to move to these rural areas and get away from uh, some of the issues they're seeing with COVID in the larger metropolitan and suburban environments. So housing is very hot. Uh, we still need welders. We still need truck drivers. We still need the health professions. And of course, that's been uh, stimulated by the demands for uh, health care in terms of uh, COVID. So there's a lot of opportunities. There's a lot of employment market. It's uh, looking for workers. And um, we're just doing the best we can. I think as many community colleges are getting ready for the demand that will be placed upon us, to get people back to work, whether they're going back to their professions and they're trying to upskill or they're going to have to do a career change. Well, then what do you think the role will be for community colleges in providing the foundation for economic recovery post-pandemic? Well, I think that will be uh, nothing new in terms of uh, philosophy and, and the, the role that community colleges play, but certainly I think there's going to be more demands placed on us uh, we are hearing about the Biden administration discussing free tuition. We heard about that today from our uh, Senator Chris Van Hollen. Uh, you know, whether that actually happens or not, we don't know. That obviously would require enormous financial resources. But we do know that the world is looking at community colleges as at least part of the solution for the recovery from this. Uh, just it's a catastrophic uh, economic and uh, uh, social uh, reality that community colleges will be positioned because of their location, because of their accessibility, because of the funding, quite frankly, that may become available to um, help people get into school, whether it's short-term or longer-term. I do think that a lot of resources will be coming down the pike. We already, from our local workforce investment board, have millions of dollars in um, state and federal dollars to help pay for student tuition. The only problem is we can't get them on campus, not in the large numbers that we'd like to, uh, to get them into these programs where they can get a certificate in a few weeks time or a few months time and go back to work and start rebuilding their lives that have been so disrupted uh, by the events of the past uh, roughly 10 to 11 months. Yeah. And it sounds like you said earlier, you guys are looking at uh, non-degree options, you know, stack credentials, you know, and things of that nature. So that that's, that's pretty exciting. What, what do you think will be, you know, when I, when I try to look forward in Montana, what will probably be the 
top 10 or 15 draw jobs that's going to that people may want to pursue what's going to happen out on the east coast what do you think will be some of our you mentioned construction what will be some of the other areas that students will flock to well, I think uh, the health professions, although I do uh, provide a caveat on that, we, I just read another article today about the impact on nurses of the, the past year crisis. Uh, many nurses are burned out. Uh, they're not feeling like they're being taken care of by some of the systems they work for. Uh, they're worried about impacts on their family. And, uh, you know, quite frankly, some nurses are getting out of the profession. But I don't think that's going to change the, the interest that we've seen historically in nursing in particular and in health professions across the board. Uh, they're well-paid, uh, they're highly skilled. There's a lot of, uh, of self-worth uh, wrapped up in those professions. And of course, the value to community is just you know, off the charts for people with those kind of credentials, whether it's nursing or you know, other health profession areas. So I see the health professions being very strong for us and will continue to be so. Um, the skilled trades, uh, we uh, just opened up a new program in the marine technology area that provides uh, training for folks that wanna go into the marinas. Uh, we have probably, I don't know, billions of dollars in local inventory in the marinas around us uh, in this uh, area that's so close to the water, you know, whether it's the bay itself or the ocean itself. And uh, so a lot of interest there. Uh, we're hoping to eventually develop a full-blown certificate, but right now we just have some key courses that allow uh, folks to get into the, uh, the business, whether it's a basic engine, repair uh, systems in terms of boat systems and you know navigation and uh, and of course con controlling uh, systems in, within boats. So we're hoping that that becomes a, a strong area for us. There's been a lot of interest in it so far and we're getting calls from you know other states because there's not a lot of programs available in the marine trades, which uh, again, there's a lot of demand there, both commercial and recreational. But I, uh, certainly IT and uh, computer, uh, computer science uh, there's not a lot of jobs for our students here on the Eastern Shore, but they can cross the bridge and in a half hour, 40 minutes, uh, be into all kinds of opportunities at the federal and the federal system uh, with uh, our security agencies we have across the bay, but also a lot of contractors that serve uh, government services. So that would also be an area that we're, we're hoping to expand to with uh, hopefully some new faculty positions that we have uh, uh, in our current budget that we're hoping to expand that programming for uh, computer science. So again, that's a kind of a broken record. You'll hear from a lot of college presidents. Those are the areas of, of great interest uh, for our students and for our local economies. But we also have students very interested in, in public education. Uh, a lot of opportunities there. The, obviously we know their K through 12 systems are looking for teachers. Uh, you know, Maryland is, uh, has a very strong commitment to public education and many of our students end up working out of state where they're also in high demand. So we have the first two years of, uh, of an education degree that students can pursue and transfer to our partner at Salisbury University, which is where most of our education majors go. So it's a, it's a broad gamut um, and we do it all. Uh, we have students that go into medicine. We have students that go into the law. Uh, I meet our alumni all the time. Uh, as I make my travels uh, across the Eastern Shore and across the, uh, the Bay in Baltimore and Annapolis, uh, our students really, as, as you see everywhere in community college uh, systems, uh, do everything. And uh, that's something I'm very proud of. Holy cow. Well, I'm going to change subjects real fast and talk about just academic leadership in general. So when I look at your bio, I see that you were the assistant dean of the School of Integrated Studies at Pennsylvania College of Technology which is an affiliate of Penn State. 
uh, it looks like you started that position back in 2004. And then you went on to become the dean of that school. And then from there, you became the dean of the School of Sciences, Humanities, and Visual Communications at Pennsylvania College of Technology. And then you headed west, and that's how I met you when you became the dean and CEO of City College, Montana State University Billings. And of course, you headed back east, and you've been the president of Chesapeake College, I believe, since 2018. That is correct. So with that said, you've been to, you've, you've been... Uh, the academic leader of, of uh, three uh, at three institutions. So I'm curious, what has been some of the most memorable accomplishments at each one of these institutions? Well, I, I have to uh, provide at least uh, one uh, slight adjustment to your narrative. I actually started out drafted uh, into this work as an interim vice president of academic affairs at what was in then Utah. In Utah. Yeah. I did that for a year and uh, discovered, uh, first of all, I could do this kind of work, but uh, also discovered that I needed to go back down the ranks and learn a lot of things I had missed, uh, including, uh, you know, all the basics, you know, dealing with uh, student conflicts with faculty, uh, dealing with uh, scheduling, uh, dealing with budgets, all the nuts and bolts uh, that you do in, in that decanal role, uh, basically, which is the foundation of uh, college and university administration anywhere on the planet. So, uh, at, uh, at, at uh, Penn College, it's really where I learned my trade. Um, I served there for almost uh, 12 or 13 years, uh, really caught up in the, the very uh, basic elements of running the academic enterprise. Um, I supported uh, uh, general education, developmental education, math and English, uh, reading, uh, also ran programs. Uh, both uh, general kind of transfer programs, but also technical programs in graphic design and um, uh, early childhood education. We had a human services uh, degree there uh, that I was responsible for, but also because I ran the general education elements of Penn College's academic program. I also worked with all the other programs at that college, which included everything from automotive technology to the health professions. Uh, we had a civil engineering program there. Uh, and so I really became acquainted with the broad uh, brush of technical education. So I would say uh, at Penn College in particular, in addition to just developing my ability to work with faculty and students and other administrators across the, all kinds of uh, division and field boundaries, um, you know, having a, a really a command of what, what a dean does on a daily basis for years, uh, dealing with all the challenges that came you know, obviously, I was at Penn College during the 2009 uh, Great Recession, which is the first time I saw an enrollment decline at Penn College, which was a real challenge for me. Uh, but also, you know, dealing with evaluating part-time, full-time faculty, dealing with curriculum, you know, all those things. So what I would consider my largest personal success at Penn College is really learning the skills and trade and, and the professional aspects of being a dean. Probably the, the best thing I left behind at, uh, at um, Penn College was... Um, just got a little text message from me there. Um, the best thing at, uh, at Penn College I left behind was a four-year emergency management uh, baccalaureate program, which is now a signature program at the college and doing very well. It produces uh, practitioners in emergency management across the range of that uh, profession. Uh, it's a relatively new profession. And uh, I was given the, the great uh, benefit and support of hiring a full-time faculty member who came into that program and really uh, helped to get off the ground. So kind of uh, my uh, penultimate uh, attainment at Penn College is developing a baccalaureate program that is now 
doing very well. Um, at, uh, at City College, uh, again, I think the, for me, the, the big success there was really uh, coming to grips with a broad portfolio. Many programs that I had been uh, ancillary to at uh, Penn College, I was directly in charge of at, uh, at, at City College, including uh, health professions, uh, liberal arts transfer kinds of programs and, and developmental education, of course, but also, you know, auto, the automobile trades, the hard, what I call the iron trades, uh, welding, and, and we had at that time an energy program. And of course, you worked with me in, in uh, innovative partnerships and innovative programs, including your use of robotics to, uh, to take your paramedic program out to these distant sites where we had, a, you know, existing um, firefighters, for example, that needed uh, paramedic training and they couldn't drive three or four or five hours to Billings to get it. And you provided that really innovative approach towards interactive technology that allowed you to do that hands-on thing from a distance. So there was a lot of really good stuff going on in the Montana system when you and I were both working in it. And um, of course, uh, great pride in uh, getting the fire program, the fire science program accredited, which had been a, a goal of the institution for quite some time. And again, I think you were involved with that as well. Uh, but, um, but those are some of the highlights for me. Uh, you know, living in Montana was kind of a dream. And I, I pursued that for three years and uh, just really had a great experience working with some really innovative folks that have now, as you have done, gone on to greater things. Um, one thing we haven't touched on is in terms of leadership is mentoring and developing leaders. And I really felt very strongly that's a role uh, that is always a very, very important part of being an administrator and a leader in academ academia is both identifying and sponsoring uh, growth and development for those that I'm working with. And uh, that also I think was successful uh, at the, both Penn College, but also City College. I really was able to work with some folks that really went on to do great things uh, and advance their careers uh, uh, in partnership with the things we were doing together. Yeah, you know, when you, when you talk about, uh, or as I started this process talking about your academic leadership, uh, I, I look back though, and when I look at your bio, it talks about you being in the Army Reserve National Guard. So when I look at your uh, leadership style, I guess the question I have is, um, uh, how is, how has your leadership style evolved over all these years? Well, it, it certainly has. And um, the foundation for my experience and training as a leader, of course, occurred in the military. I went through school, paid for college through ROTC, um, as, a, as a cadet, and then, of course, also was a simultaneous uh, member of the National Guard. It's actually, the, it's actually a program, a simultaneous membership program that allows you to be in the Guard as a, as a cadet, uh, getting paid. I was actually, a, my rank was as an E5, a sergeant, but I actually was operating as kind of a third lieutenant. And so there was some really, uh, really great uh, leadership training that was, of course, in, intrinsically part of ROTC experience at uh, the university I attended, but then I had that practical experience working at platoon level leadership, small unit leadership, uh, field training exercises, formal training exercises, deployments uh, in my work. And um, of course, as I was commissioned and then I, I was, uh, you know, I worked in several different units uh, in Washington, DC and Oklahoma while I was going to grad school, continuing that practice of developing myself as a military leader, which obviously had currency as I went into uh, the work of academic leadership. And that, of course, is, you know, that whole thing about being a servant leader, listening, as you've said, you got to listen. Uh, you know, you, you just can't go strike out in a direction and not have your facts straight. 
And I learned very early on, for example, as an officer, you know, the people who run the army uh, on a day-to-day -day basis are the NCOs. And, uh, and you learn to listen to those senior leaders in terms of their level of service and their knowledge of the nuts and bolts of an organization and how you, you do the job, whether it's a technical piece of, of equipment and so forth that you work with in that environment or the soft skills of working with people and getting people to do what needs to be done to get the mission accomplished. So I've always been very mission focused, identifying the mission of the college I serve and the people I lead and the students that we serve. That's always been a very important aspect of my work, which of course, was grounded for me in my military experience. But academic leadership has its own kind of flavor. Obviously you lead uh, through consensus and um, there's uh, that, uh, that governance process you find it's very different from anything else in the world, whether it's the private sector or the military, where in fact, you know, when you look at working with faculty, they have a voice and um, they, they must be listened to, uh, particularly in development of programs and curriculum, which of course faculty own. And uh, that's kind of the, the added piece of leadership that I've uh, developed for myself, uh, both first as a faculty member learning it myself as I was going through those processes as a teacher in my own right. But then of course, as I became a Dean and I'm now a president, you know, trying to hone and develop those things uh, as I continue my work. And of course the learning never stops. I've, in my last three years, I cannot tell you how intense that process has been. Uh, I've dealt with a, a, a extraordinary number of uh, challenging and uh, developments that all presidents deal with, you know, which is budgetary, uh, whether it's, uh, uh, you know, I had a bat infestation my first two weeks on campus that was kind of a, a major crisis. I had to manage the, the first two weeks I was there. Um, and so it just, it is the, uh, that's just the way it is. And of course, COVID is just the most recent development that has really uh, provided some stretching on, on my part to get my mind around a crisis that uh, has been ongoing now for almost a year. You know, we all prepare for those events that occur maybe a few hours or a few days, whether it's a, you know, you, you plan for the worst and uh, uh, you, you, while you prepare for the worst and plan for the best, um, you, we thought that those crises would be over in a few weeks at the most, you know, whether it's a weather event, a hurricane, an earthquake, an airplane hitting one of your buildings. But here we have a crisis that's been going on for a year. And um, it's, it's just, um, First of all, it's amazing that we're doing as well as we, we are doing uh, in terms of impact on staff and faculty and students. But obviously that was a whole learning enterprise that continues. Um, so that kind of in a nutshell is where I've been on the leadership question. It's a completely uh, ongoing process. I learned from my uh, great examples I had, previous presidents I've served with, uh, as well as the leadership I see in the system I work with. And now in Maryland, we have some really awesome presidents who are national figures uh, in what I call the community college mo movement. And um, you know, they are mentors for me as well as I continue my development as a leader in my own right. Well then, what has been some of the biggest lessons learned as an academic leader at, at your previous institutions and, and also at Chesapeake that you might wanna share um, playing the mentor mentee role with somebody who's interested in becoming a college president or a college dean? Well, there's, there's all kinds of uh, pathways to becoming a college president. And um, I took the traditional one. Uh, I started out as a faculty member, I got tenured. Um, I had an early experiment with an interim position that gave me a taste of what it was like, but I obviously came to the, the determination that I need to go back down the ranks and learn the basics of fundamentals of decanal leadership in particular, because that really, for me, was the foundation of understanding how colleges and universities work.
Um, I really had the benefit of, of, of working in state systems. Uh, obviously, Penn College is part of the Penn State family of uh, campuses, even though it's independent. Uh, and obviously at City College, very interesting model of an embedded uh, college within a larger university system that you have in Montana. And out west, of course, that's a fairly model. And that's exactly what happened to College of Eastern Utah as it was absorbed uh, and became part of uh, Utah State uh, University and, and that system. So that's kind of the, the orientation I've had, uh, basically nuts and bolts and a very deliberate progressive approach towards developing my ability to operate at the next level when that opportunity presented itself. Now, some obviously you have uh, uh, folks that get into presidencies that were financial aid officers. You have folks that get into presidencies that were business officers and administrative services. There's all kinds of different routes uh, to get into this business. But I will tell you this, the need is great. The demand is great. Uh, we do not have enough leaders in development. Um, I don't remember the last statistic I saw on college presidents and college provosts, but the retirements are extraordinary. And so there are gonna be some very empty shoes uh, in our profession over the coming years. And quite frankly, we don't have enough people ready to occupy those positions that are ready for them. So I would tell anybody that's uh, aspiring to this leadership or starting out as a department chair or now a dean, but get yourself ready because the opportunities are extraordinary, but the demands are also extraordinary. Uh, the, the level of impact on your life of this responsibility and particularly this last year has, has been really spectacular. Uh, it's a great deal of stress and strain. You got to find ways to deal with it constructively uh, while you maintain a, a, your health and you maintain a family life if you're a family person like myself. But uh, there's uh, extraordinary challenges, but extraordinary opportunities. And what I would uh, tell people is look for those leadership opportunities as faculty members, or if you're in a staff position, look for committee work look to chair committees because that is where so much of the work we do occurs and you can really learn some very important aspects of what we do uh, in, in those kind of environments even before you officially get tagged as a department chair or a dean or an assistant dean where you really kind of get in at the ground level and you, you, you learn the, the ropes as you, move, as you move up. That's kind of been my background and of course that's really what I'm good at talking about because it really worked well for me uh, and, uh, but there are other ways to get there, uh, including coming to uh, higher ed administration from the private sector. But in my experience, you know, working at a, a very logical pace, serving my time in positions of responsibility and learning those jobs in detail really was for me the valuable approach to getting where I've gotten to today. Yeah. Do you, do you provide any type of uh, mentorship for anybody at your campus or have you ever heard of anybody doing that where somebody kind of shadows or spends time with a president or a dean and then they go around and they kind of learn a little bit about the day-to-day? -day? Well, I, I don't know if I'd call it uh, uh, job shadowing, but certainly uh, I think as a president, as a dean, I was always looking for my replacement. Uh, that's just, again, another aspect of my training as, an, as a military person. You know, none of us are not expendable. Uh, all of us have surprises in our lives and you know, it is a disservice to your institution if you don't leave someone prepared or a group of people prepared to carry on the mission if for some reason you go, you're gone, uh, whether it's a health issue or uh, some other aspect of uh, real life that comes along. Uh, you know, I've always taken uh, great care to identify uh, folks that I know within my organization that are capable, that are interested, that have the right uh, motivations. And then I try to, to mentor them. I try to, I try to give them direct uh, 
uh, input into what they need to do to be successful. And of course, when they start looking, even if it means they got to leave the organization, I'm supportive of them uh, because, uh, you know, everybody has their own story. Everybody has their own trajectory. And, um, you know, I've always been of the mind that, uh, you know, whatever your interests are, uh, as long as they're appropriate and I can be of assistance, that's what my role is as a, as a leader up the chain. And I've been very successful. Um, I took faculty at Penn College that were interested and very capable. They became department chairs, they became deans. Um, several of them are now vice presidents. Uh, in fact, the replacement I hired at uh, Penn College that eventually replaced me is now the, the provost at Penn College. Uh, and that's, that's been an extraordinary rise and really uh, that individual really had all, all the credentials and experience and, and, and uh, capabilities that he had. Uh, he brought with him that they've served him very well. Uh, but I've, um, you know, I continue to do that here. Uh, you know, part of your job as a president is to look around and, and see who's who and who's what and uh, develop those that are developable and help them get where they want to go. And that's just a feature of my leadership that I've. I've oh, yeah. I, I think uh, I'm one of those uh, results of mentorship from you. You helped me. As, as I moved forward and left City College, become a dean at another institution. So yes, uh, I, I never thought about you working with somebody as a replacement, but I guess, yes, you, we didn't shadow you, but you did pass on information, kept everybody in the loop of how to do things, so. And I tell you, I think of, of all the things that are rewarding about what we do, that really is one of them, is, is watching folks that you work with, good colleagues, uh, department chairs and deans and uh, vice presidents as they are successful and they move on to other things or they move up in your own organization or uh, in my case it's happened several times they replace me when I moved on myself you know really ultimately what I want to do is leave the place better than I found it uh, and that's really uh, kind of the overarching goal for me in, in terms of my role as a president whenever that time comes for me to move on for my current role at Ch as Chesapeake I want to make sure uh, that my board of trustees have a number of choices uh, to, uh, to replace me, uh, even if it's including bringing somebody in from the outside again. Um, but I just want to give them those options so that the, uh, the business of my institution can continue uh, seamlessly. So what do you think um, is going to happen to higher ed? What do you think, wh where do you think higher ed's going in the next five to 10 years? from where it is last year? Well, I, I do think uh, it's gonna be tremendously impacted by COVID for both, uh, both positively and negatively. Positively, it has forced many institutions to adopt new technologies that serves the interests of students and doing it better. I know we uh, spent our summer trying to improve the uh, ability of our faculty to teach effectively online, uh, providing them as much training and curriculum development as possible. Uh, that process will continue um, you know, we all, uh, I mean, I didn't even know what Zoom was before last uh, March or February. I simply did not use it very often. Now, of course, that, uh, that technology has become, as much as we may detest it, has become essential to doing our business. So I think the aspects of technology and education will continue to be critical. Uh, whether we like it or not, online learning is here to stay. But I also will say this, hands-on, in-classroom, on-campus learning will not go away. It will be with us forever uh, because there are simply things and um, uh, aspects of instruction that simply are best in that kind of face-to-face -face environment. Um, but I do think the shakeout will continue. 
I think institutions that uh, are uh, on the wrong side of uh, keeping up with the pace of change. I think we've got to be innovative in terms of programs and increasingly, uh, and I know this is kind of controversial, we have to do right by our students. They have to come out of uh, these experiences in which they're expending their tuition dollars with degrees that serve them in terms of providing a, a, a means to make a living, a means to, uh, uh, you know, if they want to have families, if they want to, you know, have a standard of living, we have to be as institutions providing that for them uh, with advising, with strong programs that serve them well, you know, whether it's in the liberal arts and sciences and we prepare them for pre professions that are uh, gained through a graduate study down the road, or whether we have these terminal programs, we have to make sure that we're accredited. We have to make sure that we're providing quality education because that demand by our constituencies will only be greater in the coming years as a major investment is made in, um, in particular in community colleges by our state and federal governments. Yeah, I think with employable skills, I, it just seems logical that uh, uh, the community colleges are going to be able to serve a lot of these industry needs down the road and, and get, get people moving toward a, a better life and things like that. So at least that's my hope. Well, I think, uh, you know, what we do is, is really the foundations of civilization as we know it, you know, whether it's transportation or healthcare or education, uh, the services uh, industry, uh, uh, all these uh, very vital uh, enterprises are founded in a higher education, you know, whether it's short-term or long-term, uh, that's what we do. And, um, you know, obviously we've seen that we've got shortcomings in the last uh, uh, 10 months. Obviously the whole diversity, equity, inclusion uh, demand, we have to do better there, serving all of our students better and providing them the means not only to get to us, but just to be successful uh, with their courses of study. And that's something we're also working on very heavily at Chesapeake. Well, it was great talking with you today. Enjoy catching up. Uh, I, I want to say thank you so much for being on the podcast and I appreciate you taking time out of your schedule. I know you're a very busy person. So thanks for spending a, a few minutes with us and telling us about Chesapeake and some of your views on higher ed. Thanks, David. I wish you well too in your new enterprise. And uh, of course, uh, your work here with the podcast, I think that's a great service for our, our, uh, for our business. And I, I wish you the best in that enterprise. Thanks, Cliff. Well, that wraps up today's episode. Thanks, everyone, for listening. Thanks for listening to today's episode, and make sure to visit our website at academicdean.com for additional information. Also, if you enjoy our podcast, please don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe. Until next time.